And I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, starting today right where we left off last week in verse 17. So over, for over two years now, we've been following Jesus through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've now followed Him right up into that crucial, holy last week. Last week, we read about what happened on the Wednesday of Passion Week. Today, we enter into that critical final 24 hours leading up to the crucifixion, starting sometime on Thursday, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the previous day, Wednesday, what we looked at last week, Judas, one of the twelve, turned traitor. And he sold his services and he sold his master to the chief priests for 30 pieces of silver. Today, on Thursday, Jesus and his disciples will prepare for the Passover and keep the Passover feast. They're going to eat the Passover together. But it will be a Passover such as there's never been before. I've entitled this message from Jesus' words in verse 18 where he says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples. The Passover with my disciples. That's Jesus talking there. The Passover with my disciples. Jesus leads his disciples into a Passover feast like no previous Passover. Friends, there's never been anything like this. We are almost contemptuously familiar with it because we've read it over and over, perhaps mindlessly repeated these words many times, but this was one special Passover. And the reason was because Jesus made this Passover all about him. Now, by now, we should not be surprised. If we are surprised that Jesus makes something all about himself, we've not been paying attention as we've read the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is a theological biography of the Lord Jesus Christ, the most compelling, most interesting, most important person who has ever lived. Matthew is showing us in 28 chapters, he's showing us and telling us who Jesus really is. And as we come to understand who Jesus really is, He calls us to follow him. So keep your eye on the ball. Yesterday, I had worked up a four-point outline of applications from this passage, verses 17 through 30, that I thought was pretty clever. I was like, oh yeah, they're going to like this one. Mm Mm-hmm. I did. But it didn't sit right with me. Only one of the four points that I had really focused in on Jesus. They were more about us. We should do this, we should do that, and so forth. And so I just got more and more uncomfortable with my outline as an outline for this passage. So I crumpled up that piece of paper and started over again. Then I came up with three points instead that keep the focus squarely on Jesus as he keeps the Passover with his disciples If you'll pray with me, we'll read these verses and I'll try to show you what I see. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us your word. 
I love that after two years, we have, we've just kind of scratched the surface of the Gospel of Matthew. And there's still more diamonds to be found by digging. Pray, Lord, that we would see those diamonds today. We'd see the treasure that's here in your word, and we would take it to heart. And I pray more than anything that we would see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Matthew 26, verse 17. Listen as I read the first three verses for a key word, Passover. Okay, listen for Passover. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. Stop there for a second. Did anybody hear the word Passover? (laughs) Matthew wants us to not miss this. He wants to make sure that we get this is about the Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread that he mentions is a, it's a week, about a week-long festival to remind the people of Israel of their rescue from Egypt. And it's tied in with the Passover feast. But it's the longer one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. God had dramatically saved His people from slavery. Do you remember the story from the book of Exodus? Yes? You know the story of the escape from Egypt, right? How many were here when I preached the book of Exodus in 2005? Okay, good. You remember this, okay? Oh, I know that was 15 years ago, uh, but and I was 15 years old back then, you know. So, um, but we went through the book of Exodus. God sent Moses to Pharaoh to say what? Let my. That's right. And Pharaoh said, "No." And God said, "Oh yes, you will." Right? And God hammered Egypt with ten plagues. We called it creational warfare. Water to blood, frogs everywhere, gnats everywhere, flies ruining the land, pestilence on the livestock, boils on everyone, hail bombing that decimated Egypt, a locust swarm that took everything left, and darkness that you could feel. And then that devastating last tenth plague, the Lord promised to kill every firstborn son in the land. And after that, the people of Israel were set free. That's what this feast celebrates. They had to take off in a hurry. There was no time to let the bread rise. When they celebrated this, they would uh, have their, their, their boots on, their sandals on. You didn't normally wear your sandals in the house, you know, but they would keep their sandals on when they ate this food. It was like this time of year wearing your winter coat at the table because you might have to run. At any moment. Well, maybe not right now. Right now we're not even wearing coats out there, right? But normally in January, wearing your winter coat at the table because you've got to run. There's no time to let the bread rise. There's no time for yeast. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now this day, this Thursday that he's talking about, this first day is actually the day of preparation for all of that. It's the day you got everything ready. You know, it's like... Um, the, the, like Christmas Eve, you've got to get everything ready before the day of Christmas, right? This is that day of preparation. This is the day where the Jews went throughout their houses cleaning out any leaven that's there. And they, they do a fresh sweep 
for any yeast, pushing it out of the house. And they prepare the Passover meal, including the lamb. That blameless Paschal lamb was bought in the market. It needed to be blameless. And then it was taken to the temple. What did they do to the lamb at the temple? They sacrificed it. And they poured the blood of the lambs into these basins. And then they would hand the basins, priest to priest, up to the altar, and they'd splash the blood on the altar. And then they would burn the fat from the lamb. And then they took the lamb, what's left the lamb, home, and they roasted it over a fire to eat as a family with some unleavened bread and some bitter herbs, probably bitter to talk about how bitter their time in Egypt had been, and a little fruit sauce puree to dip their food in, and four cups of wine. This dinner happened after sundown which in the Jewish reckoning begins a new day. So we would still call it Thursday, but for them it was the the beginning of their Friday when they would eat that evening. The Jews had been doing this feast for 1,500 years. Okay? By the time Jesus eats it with them. They've been doing it 1,500 years. The Exodus was in around 1445 B.C., and this is probably 33 A.D., That's six times longer than our nation has existed. I mean, does it feel like George Washington was a long time ago? Well, like six times that long was how long ago the people of Israel had been set free. So the Passover was an ancient custom to them. And you remember why it's called the Passover, right? Because at the first Passover, back in Exodus 12, the Jews were to paint they didn't have bowls and they didn't splash the blood onto the altar they took the blood from the lamb and they painted it on the door frames like you know on this side here and then this side here and up over here it was blood they painted the door frames with blood because that night the lord would pass over their homes And not take the lives of their firstborn sons if their door had been painted with this blood. And that's exactly what happened. The Lord killed every single one of the firstborn sons of Egypt, but He passed over the firstborn sons of Israel when He saw this blood. How many here are firstborn sons? Raise your hand. I'm one. Okay, now raise your hand if you have a firstborn son, like you're a mom or dad of a firstborn son. The Bible says there was loud wailing in Egypt that night. I can only imagine. When our firstborn daughter died back in 1999, I wailed in that hospital room. I can't imagine what it sounded like throughout Egypt when it happened in every single house. But not on the houses in Israel where there was blood of the lamb on the frame of the door. So the Jews have been reenacting this now for 1,500 years when Jesus comes to Jerusalem to eat the Passover with His disciples. But there's never been a Passover like this one. 
The disciples ask Jesus where he wants to eat the Passover, and Jesus has a plan. He tells them to go into the city. They'd probably been staying outside of the city. He tells them to go inside the city to a certain man. The other Gospels tell us it's a man carrying a jar of water, which was unusual for a man to be doing. And to tell this certain man that Jesus is coming over for dinner. Look at verse 18 again. Tell this man, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Now, here's the first thing I want to emphasize this morning. We saw it last week, too. It's very simple. He knows. I kept writing it in the margins of my scriptures in verse 17 through 25 as I was working through this. He knows. Obviously, he knew that this man was going to be there and give them an upper room to eat the Passover. I don't know if that is supernatural foreknowledge or something Jesus has secretly arranged on the side so that he can do this quietly without the fuss and the crowds. Either way, he knows. But he knows a lot more than that. He knows that it's his time. Don't don't miss that phrase in verse 19 when he says, My appointed time is near. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that it's really close. He says it's at hand. He's told them that. We saw it last week in verse 2. Matthew wants us to get the drift that Jesus knows what's up this week. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him tomorrow. It's his time. Now his disciples probably thought that he meant that it was time for him to kick out the Roman occupiers. Maybe send some more plagues in their way. No. No, it's time for Jesus to... You know what? And he knows it too. And he's choosing it. See, that's that's what I want want you to see. He knows what's going to happen and he's choosing it. He's sailing into the wind. He's going into the storm. It doesn't happen to him. He happens to it. He's clearly in charge now. He's the one calling the shots. He's the one ordering the steps. Verse 19, so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. And what a Passover it was. Look at verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. Remember what we said last week about how they would lie on these mats on their side or on their tummies towards a low central table? I read this week that it wasn't so much of a wheel with spokes on it, like I said last week, but more of often a U-shape. So they're still on their tummies and they're leaning forward, but it's kind of like in a U-shape or like, like this with people coming in at a table. And this side over here would be open so servers could come in and put on the food or something like that. So kind of in a U-shape, still all angled in. They're reclining. It's very intimate, isn't it? A bunch of you are laying there, eating your food. You're all together. Your heads are together. Verse 21, And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. He knows. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows there's a traitor in their midst, and he tells them so. He just kind of drops that bomb in the middle of the conversation. By the way, I know one of you will betray me. 
And they're shocked. Verse 22, they were very sad and began to say to him one after another, surely not I, Lord. Surely not I, Lord. It's not me, is it? 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 There's 12 of them. Is it me? Is it me? I hope not. Say it ain't so. Verse 22. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Which one's that? Oh, you know who it is. We already know because Matthew told us. But that could have been any of them. Who's been dipping in? Who's been putting their breadstick in the marinara? Right? Could be anybody around this table. The unleavened breadstick and the bitter herbs. The little piece of lamb and the fruit puree. He knows it's one of them, and he also knows just how bad it is. Verse 24, the Son of Man, there's that title again. He loves that phrase for himself. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. What a devastating sentence that is. And what great theology. You see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man in the exact same verse? I don't know exactly how those two things work together, but I am certain they do. God's plan will be enacted, but that does not mean we're not responsible when we sin. We are. Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Jesus knows. Isn't it amazing that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man here? I mean, he just got teaching about the the Son of Man, right? In chapter 24 and 25. The Son of Man who's going to come in glory at a time known only to the Father. The Son of Man who's going to judge all the nations. Well, this same Son of Man is going to, verse 24, go just as it was written about him. What's been written about him? I think he's talking about scriptures like Psalm 22. And Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a what? A lamb to slaughter. Passover. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to go just as it was written about him. And he knows it. And he chooses it. 
And he knows who's going to betray him. Verse 25. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, 30 pieces of silver, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Interesting he doesn't call him Lord like all the rest of them do. Can't bring himself to say it. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. Or literally, you have said it. I don't think everybody got it at that time, but I'm sure that Judas did. He knows. He knows. And still he goes forward. This should make us so grateful. It should cause us to wonder and to marvel and to worship that God would have such a plan and that Jesus would know that plan and enact that plan. It's just, it's just too much to take in, isn't it? It should also give us great confidence as we walk through this life because we know that He knows. There's so much that we don't know. Don't you wish you knew? Like most of the time, oh man, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. There's so much we don't know. But He knows. And He still gives. That's number two. He gives. Do me a favor now and pretend that you don't know what's coming next. Okay, can you do that? You just, uh, hard to move your brain that way, isn't it? I know that you've come prepared to eat the Lord's Supper. We did last week. We're doing it again today because here we are in Matthew 26. I know that you know that this next thing is what we call the Last Supper or, or um, uh, the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper from the Greek for, uh, or the, from the Greek for give thanks, the Eucharist, the He gave thanks meal. Or we often call this communion because of the fellowship aspect of it. Fellowship with God and fellowship with the church. But just for a second, humor me and try to pretend that you don't know what's coming next because the disciples didn't. They thought they were just eating the Passover with Jesus. I mean, it's been a big week. Jesus has come in on the donkey. He's been fighting with the leaders in the temple. He just taught on, the, on, on his return. It's, there's a lot going on, but he think, they think it's just the Passover. Now we're going to do the Passover. We've been doing this for 1,500 years. But all of a sudden, Jesus is going to do something new with it. He's going to put a twist on the Passover meal that nobody saw coming. He's going to make this meal all about Him. Keep your eye on the ball. Verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to His disciples saying, Take and eat. This is My body. This has never happened before at a Passover meal. It's never happened before at a Passover meal, I guarantee. For 1,500 years, there has been food at the Passover meal. There's been roasted lamb, yum. Bitter herbs, ew. Unleavened bread, okay. And drink, customarily four glasses of wine per participant. Four rounds to go with the four promises that God made to Israel in Exodus 6 when He said that He would rescue them from Egypt. One cup, then later on they would do things and they would take the second cup and then, this one, then the third cup and then eventually at the end of the meal the fourth cup. And for 1,500 years there have been speeches made at the Passover. In fact, you're supposed to get one of the youngest people in the family and it's, and it's like the young son's job to say, what does all this mean? 
And then the dad is supposed to say, well, let me tell you, son, what happened in Egypt when God rescued us, right? Speech is made at every Passover meal. But this has never happened in 1,500 years. This man takes bread and he breaks it and he calls it my body. He makes it all about himself. And what do you call a broken body? A body broken up into pieces. A dead man, right? He's saying, this is my death. And then he passes it around. He gives it to his disciples at the Passover meal in little pieces. And he says, here, take a little piece of my death. Here, eat this. It's a little piece of my death. Just imagine the look of puzzlement on the disciples' faces. What did he say? That's not what you do at this part of the Passover meal. What, what, did he say that this is his body and this is his death? Take, eat, this is my body. Now, I think that's obviously symbolic. He couldn't have meant it literally at this point. He's standing there in his body. It's obviously symbolic, but it's a powerful symbol. This is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be broken. I'm giving my life. Now here, take some. You, over there, take some. Come on, eat some of this. Take some of my death so you will get my life. He gives. Oh, sorry. Don't miss the symbolism of the distribution here. He gives it out to them because he's giving his life for them. Verse 27, then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. You see that? How he offers it? Don't miss that part. How he's spreading it around. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood. My blood. He makes it all about himself. Of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Can you believe how many people have focused on the cup? Making it out to be some kind of holy grail. The point is not the cup. The point is not even what's in the cup. The point is what what's in the cup stands for. This is my blood and I'm giving it for you. This has never happened before in the history of the Passover, I guarantee you see how Jesus is tying everything back to him? Because he's actually, he's, he's the lamb, obviously, too, right? The Apostle Paul knew that. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ is our Passover lamb. He fulfills Exodus 12, Isaiah 53. But Jesus takes it even further by transforming the Passover bread and the Passover drink to stand for his sacrificial death on the cross. He knows what's coming in just a few hours, and he chooses it. He chooses to give himself to us, for us. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. This is the required sacrifice to enact the new covenant. What Jesus is about to do will unleash the power of the new covenant on the new covenant people. And it will make all of the difference for all of our lives and for all of eternity. And he says it will mean the forgiveness of our sins. 
That's unbelievably good news, friends, because the Lord knows we are sinners in need of forgiveness. Amen? I'm sure the disciples didn't know what to make of what they just heard. But it's clear that they thought a lot about it in the years to come. And the church has rehearsed this new kind of Passover meal for the last 2,000 years. This is what we do it here monthly, right? A lot of churches around the world do it every week. They come to this table every week to remind themselves of what was happening that night in the upper room and what it meant for him to go to the cross. It's a deeply symbolic way of reminding ourselves just what Jesus gave for us. He gave his body and he gave his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Do you know that? I know you've heard it before, but do you know it? Have you received it? Have you received this gift of forgiveness through his blood? This is the meaning of his death. Jesus was saying in advance what the cross is going to mean and what the cross is going to do. This is why Jesus is allowing Judas to betray him. This is why Jesus is going to go through every other awful thing in chapters 26 and 27. It gets worse every week from here on until we get to chapter 28. It's just going to get worse. He knows that all of this is coming. And he chooses it because he's choosing to give. Have you received that gift? If not, why not? Nothing to lose and everything to gain. I know some people say, I just, I don't deserve that. And friends, you're absolutely right. You don't. And neither do I. This is scandalous grace. Jesus does this for people who do not deserve it. This is for the forgiveness of not of mistakes, but of sins. Take in his death and gain his life. And don't you dare say that Jesus' body and blood aren't powerful enough for your sins. Don't devalue what he did on that cross. Don't you dare. This is the new exodus. This is the new rescue. Not from slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin. What's in this cup stands for freedom. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So here's my question. Are you in that many? You can be if you repent and come in. He knows and he foreknows. He gives and he forgives. And he tells and he retells. Last point. He promises. Jesus promises his return and his kingdom. Look at verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Some people think that Jesus held up the third of four cups of wine to institute the Lord's Supper. And then he left that last cup on the table as they walked out singing to the Mount of Olives. I don't know. It's possible. It'd be pretty dramatic, which is just like Jesus. All those like 11, 12 cups left behind. What I do know is that he said that he wouldn't be drinking from the fruit of the vine again and 
And again, he knows until that day. A day in the future. A great eschatological day. A day when the Son of Man comes in all of His glory to set up the messianic banquet. Jesus promises to return and to drink again one day anew with you. Don't miss it. In my Father's kingdom. Again, He makes it all about Himself. My Father. He claims that God, who's going to bring the kingdom, is His Father. And he says there's going to be a kingdom. Jesus' favorite thing to talk about. We've seen it again and again in the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of God is coming. The Father has a kingdom and it's coming for sure. We don't know when, right? We don't know when. But we know for sure that the kingdom is coming. Because the king is going to come back and when he does there will be a great celebration forever. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For when he comes, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We don't know when that will be, but we know that he promised it and that he always keeps his promises. And we know that it will be a day unlike no other. Isaiah says the ransom of the Lord will return They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. And we'll drink from the fruit of the vine anew with Jesus in His Father's kingdom. He knows. He gives. He promises.